0: Hello and welcome to the TPA Digital Podcast. TPA are a global digital consultancy working with some of the largest brands to help them move forward with their data-driven digital advertising. Part of our mission is to provide truly impartial expertise to brands looking for solutions to their individual needs. Due to seismic shifts in technology and privacy, No problem seems to be bigger for our clients than the issue of data and identity. So I'm very happy to introduce the topic of our podcast today, which is how advertisers are using clean rooms to create a new privacy-first approach to data-driven digital advertising. And you'll be hearing from three experts from companies providing new solutions to the market, taken from a panel we hosted recently with representatives from Optical, Habu, and Permutive. We cover topics such as how privacy legislation is changing the digital marketing landscape, new methods for future-proofed activation and measurement, advice for brands starting their data cleaning journey, and we also opened it up for some questions from brands listening in. So we hope you enjoy. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our panel of experts. First, we've got James, who is the CRO at Optical. James, would you like to introduce yourself briefly?
1: <clears throat> sure. Thank you, uh, Danny. Yeah, my name is James Prudhomme, uh, Chief Revenue Officer at Optible. Um, Optible is a Canadian company headquartered in Montreal, founded by uh, a team that came out of Samsung Ads. Um, and, but I'm based here in London in the UK, uh, overseeing the uh, global uh, go-to-market efforts.
0: Perfect. Thank you. And we've also got Andra, who is the Sales Director of Audience Platform for Advertisers at Permitiv. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Sure, thank you, Danny. Hi, everyone. My name is Andra Mititelo, and uh, I'm the sales director, audience platform for advertisers at Permittive. This is actually a new role that I uh, started earlier this year that I'm really excited about. But I have been working in uh, digital data and tech for over a decade, started my career agency side, Mediacom, Starcom, then transitioned technology side. So the past uh, six years I spent at Oracle Data Cloud and more recently uh, LiveRamp. Uh, So I have seen privacy transform our industry over the past years. Um, And in my role, I have been working closely with advertisers and agencies to help them stay ahead of these changes uh, while executing compliant data driven strategies.
0: Great. Thank you. And we've got Tim, who is managing director of EMEA at Habu, if you'd like to introduce yourself, Tim.
3: Thanks Danny and hi everyone. Um, Actually special thanks to TPA I think for organizing this because you guys have really pulled one out of the bag here. I think great topic and obviously the number of attendees shows that this is something that's really interesting to everybody. Um, I run our international business at Habu. We are a software company that focuses really on helping brands to unlock value from increasingly disparate data sets, right? In privacy compliant ways and clean rooms are a big part of that today, I think. We're quite unique in the sense that we provide an offering that both enables people to build clean rooms, but also interface with existing clean rooms, such as those from Google, Facebook, Snowflake, all really important kind of things today.
0: Thank you. Just before we get started, um, one tiny bit of housekeeping. So we're aiming to have a good discussion for about 45, 50 minutes, leaving 10 to 15 minutes for some Q&A at the end. So please, guys, as we go through, feel free to submit any questions that you've got to the panel um, using the Q&A function on the Zoom webinar. And then at the end, time permitting, um, we'll put as many questions as we can to the panel. So I will stop sharing my screen with everyone and let's dive in so we are here today to understand how brands are using data clean rooms but let's just take a step back to start with so why is there now a demand for clean rooms and andrea i'll point this one at you to start with so what changes have driven us to this point so how do we get where we are today
2: Mm, Thanks, Danny. I think it's important we understand why we're here. Um, So look, privacy is no doubt the main driver transforming the digital advertising ecosystem. Um, In my view, it started with increased consumer awareness around how our data online is being used by third parties, companies that don't have a direct relationship to us. And this is all happening without our consent. Um, As a result, we've seen new privacy regulation emerge in Europe and in the US, um, and the big tech players that own browsers, Apple with Safari, Mozilla with Firefox, Google with Chrome, they all started to move away from third-party identifiers, mainly third-party cookies. Um, you know, why is that? Simply third-party cookies are not fit for a privacy-first world, because there's no mechanism to get consumer consent via third-party indirect relationship. Um, so at you know, we've seen these changes mostly affect independent publishers um, and the so-called open web. Uh, and this happened already a few years ago. And uh, we believe that we're currently witnessing a shift from what used to be the open web, where companies could just help themselves to your data, to what is emerging as the responsible web based on consented data that's been collected in a privacy-safe way and processed in a privacy-safe way, and um, something that's very important to us as well, which fairly compensates independent publishers for the value that they create. Um, So this therefore requires a shift, a shift from third-party relationships to first-party relationships, from also possibly third-party data to first party data. Uh, Why is that? Simply because direct relationships, first party relationships with the user or the consumer are the foundation for consent and for restoring consumer trust. Um, So in this world brands, what this means is that brands need to collaborate more closely with partners, with publishers, as they are the two endpoints that frame the digital advertising ecosystem. Um, however, we know that data collaboration raises questions around privacy, around security, around control. And although it sounds simple, it's no uh, no easy feat. So, um, actually, I've seen some recent research uh, last week from Forrester that showed that 70% of advertisers still today are concerned about privacy compliance, uh, but over half, over 60%, are underutilizing uh, their first-party data. So let's come uh, to a conclusion and the solution. Now, the solution that uh, we've seen is working with privacy first partners and clean technology. So today we're here to talk uh, specifically about clean rooms. Like you mentioned, the key challenge is that there's no standardized understanding and definition of what clean rooms are, uh, which has... given a lot of headache for advertisers and agencies. So to, to today uh, we're all trying to define it and to demystify it um, and provide clarity for you. So um, in my view, the definition for clean rooms is something along these lines. Um, infrastructure that is secure and built with privacy by design and that allows partners to collaborate around first party data for a number of use cases such as insights or targeting.
1: I think I think Andrew did a really good job of, of providing the context and the two really key drivers, right, which are privacy legislation on the one hand and then technographic changes to cookies and other types of device identifiers on the other hand. So you can sort of think of um, you know data collaboration and data sharing has actually been going on for a long time within the digital marketing ecosystem, but the glue that is traditionally bound uh, data sets together is now kind of melting away and disappearing. So that leaves us needing new solutions for collaboration. And I think that's where clean rooms come in. I think what's really important as well for brands to understand from a legislative point of view, is that what's fundamentally changed, and it's very apparent in Europe with the GDPR, and starting to become more so in the U.S. And, and other markets, is that you know brands are no longer the owners of the data; they are the custodians of the data, and it's really the data subjects, which are you and me and our families and our friends, um, that ultimately, under law and at law, are the are the owners of uh, of the data that we generate, um, you know, day to day online. So I think that's a really really important distinction. Um, so, where a clean room comes in then is, you know, as Andrew pointed out, it's really uh, a safe, secure, and compliant way for two parties, brand and publisher, brand and brand, brand and third party data provider. There's a, there's a number of different sort of permutations, but let's say two parties to come together um, and match their first party identity graph in a way that it allows them to remain compliant, that is privacy preserving, um, and that you know protects the sovereignty of the underlying data. So that's where you get into clean rooms using advanced cryptography and um, and these types of uh, these types of technologies. So hopefully that you know helps to kind of set a bit of context and and provide a, def- uh, a a definition of what a clean room is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's great to understand that background and where it's actually emerged from. So. Tim, what do you think some of those main concepts that have driven this change are and with that data cleanroom room technology?
3: Yeah, I, I think we've done a, a good job of defining it now, so I'm not going to retread that path. I'll probably layer on top of a little bit. I think there's this great analogy, actually, that um, Habu's head of customer success, Ted Flanagan, has where he reframes the analogy of data being the new oil. Um, we kind of have to ask ourselves if that's actually a good thing, right? Would we want data to be oil, or should we be thinking about, um, you know, data really being energy that fuels the different types of business outcomes and customer experiences that we have? I mean, James used the word melting in there. I mean, the, the physical world is literally melting due to climate change, right? And I think we're seeing similar parallels now emerge in digital, with some of the things that have happened with the way that we mined and kind of got our data, um, and I think what we're seeing really is not just clean rooms emerge, but more a wave of privacy enhancing technologies. And people hear that term, right? PETs, pets for sure, um, that are a really good parallel for what's happening in the energy industry. And if you think about the industry and our ecosystem having really run on quite dirty data for a while, I think if we're honest with ourselves, um, at Habu specifically, we're kind of thinking of ways that we can try and shift that mindset towards more of a sustainable, and long lasting kind of energy source, something that's fueled by privacy for sure. And also to James's point around sovereignty, it's not just about privacy, but how can we let that data be completely sovereign and tap into principles of the GDPR, You know, article five, section C and E around data minimization and how data should be processed, I think is really, really key in there. Um, I'll shut up in just a second, but I mean, the long story short for me is that I think there hasn't been enough transparency in kind of like the things that we put in place post-GDPR. I think most consumers don't understand consent mechanisms. And I do think that fuels a lot of the pushback we see from privacy advocates and regulators against this kind of gray market of data collection and transmission. And that's where, you know, technology like clean rooms can really come in and start to to solve some of that.
0: Absolutely, great. And so, I guess that's some of the background and as to why this new way of data sharing has had to exist and where it's emerged from and that need for transparency and that privacy by design. Um, But I guess looking to the applications of this, so what are the practical applications of that? So Tim, I guess I'll pass it back to you first. So what are some of the data clean rooms use cases for advertisers? And if you've got any particularly successful examples that you're able to talk us through?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think if you if you wound the clock back maybe 12 months, because it's quite a nascent industry, you wouldn't have many great examples. I think that the generation one of all of this was was pretty rudimentary. It was people matching CRM files and feeling pretty disappointed about match rates at that, right? So there was a lot of energy going in, a lot of effort being put in, but not much output. Um, th- things have really changed, I think. There's been such a number of forces kind of pushing people to invest in exploring this and, and kind of iterating on use case, that we now see kind of like different phases of maturity happening on the brand side with clean rooms. For me, phase one is really around measurement and kind of insights and optimization. So brands need to be leveraging clean room technology to go and get as much impression and user-level data as they can from the places that they spend money. That could be Wall Gardens, tapping into Google's Ads Data Hub or Facebook's clean room, or it could be going to your big media partners and asking them to provision data sets through clean rooms that allow you to get to that granular level of optimization. Um, Phase two is actually more around how you can think about making new data. We have some really good examples here at Habu because we're lucky to work with uh, a number of CPG brands where you see CPGs actually going to market now with technology and saying, well, I'm not gonna wait for someone to, to make data for me. I will in Mexico, for example, where there's maybe less endemic and available data go straight to retailer and have them provision data for me as a major CPG around their loyalty and transaction set. And that's a new mindset, I think, for CPGs to be in charge of that. And then the last one uh, would just be around machine learning. I think where this all goes, you know, you start off with basic matching, then you start off with kind of data creation use cases, but, you know, we're not always going to have the scale. So modeling machine learning and being able to extrapolate what you can Synthesize across data sets is going to be really key. And that's something we call clean ML here.
0: Great. So I guess that's quite a broad spectrum of use cases. So where can you apply that in terms of planning through measurement to activation?
3: I I think across the lifecycle, right? Uh, Great example, even not in the enterprise, we started working with the D2C brand recently who they wanted to validate that their planning was on point across their their Google um, spend, right? The only way you can really do that is by inspecting the most granular data and and that stuff's locked away now. It's put into clean rooms. You don't get the log files delivered to you anymore. So being able to go deep on those data sets and and actually make sense of them enables you to validate things like your reach and frequency, your kind of on target reach, you know, what your, your optimal frequency to conversion is and that really is like step one for me in terms of that. It's, it's, it's validating planning and then optimizing around what you've been doing to, to make sure that you're you're on point.
0: And um, Andrea, I feel like you'll have a slightly different or interesting perspective on this because of your work with publishers. So, do you have anything to add to those use cases?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, thank you for pointing out, out Danny. Actually. Um, in my current role at, at Primitive, we focus predominantly on working with publishers and solving these challenges in the open web. Why? Because it's independent publishers and the open web that we feel is most heavily, are most, most heavily impacted by these privacy changes and these technology changes, browser changes that we mentioned earlier. Um, So, it's in our DNA, we have been working with independent premium publishers for the past five years or so to help them prepare for the cookie-less and privacy-safe future. And what we've seen over the past year or so is that actually now brands and agencies are starting to face similar challenges to those faced by uh, publishers uh, even as early as a few years ago. Um, So uh, we've launched uh, the audience platform that enables advertisers to work more closely with publishers around trusted first-party data relationships. Uh, and the clean room technology is part of that, enabling that safe uh, collaboration on data. Um, so to bring this to life a little bit, I thought I'll walk you through an example of how we work with a global CBG brand and how they're currently um, collaborating with publishers. So firstly, we talk about the value of first party data as a brand focusing more on understanding your customers, acquiring data on your customers in a privacy safe way based on consent is really critical. So then you want to be able to activate it across your key media channels. Um, and in the open web is particularly difficult to, to do that. Um, identity solutions, I find it difficult to scale because there's little authenticated traffic. Um, So um, our uh, solution is based on working with publishers in a direct capacity. So um, the CPG brand can scale their first-party data activation from matching in a safe way their first-party data asset, whether it's hashed emails or cookies, against uh, publisher first-party data from matched uh, cohorts. But like I mentioned earlier, using email addresses only for matching, uh, the reality is that the authentication rates across publishers are still very low. So the ability to target uh, to scale matched audiences uh, is limited, which is why um, we see uh, this CPG client that I'm talking about also uh, leverage modeling. Uh, modeling to extend their first-party audience, first-party matched audience across 100% of the publisher inventory, which helps them uh, with prospecting, for example. But then for me, the most interesting uh, use case is always around insights. Um, So this global CPG brand we're working with onboarded and matched a number of first-party data segments and uh, matched them against the key premium publishers, such as Condé Nast, Hearst, Bauer, or Immediate Media, and they wanted to better understand two of their key cohorts, uh, first-party segments, um, active females and active males. And they found, interestingly, interestingly, that active females indexed highly against publisher cohorts such as cycling and healthy cooking and eating and healthy males were interested in rugby and men's health. So this insight helped them identify which publisher cohorts are most relevant, but also more generally widen their understanding of their audiences. And the last thing I want to add here is that they also found that 40% of the content that their active females and active males first party segments were consuming across these uh, key publishers, independent publishers, was in cookie-less browsers. So Safari, Firefox, that are already cookie blocked environment. So that meant that they had to adopt a cookie-less technology to reach those users in Safari and Firefox cookie-blocked environments today. Otherwise, they're missing on the opportunity to reach their high value audiences. And the last one was around mobile. They found that 60% of their um, high value audiences consume content on mobile, which started to inform things like their creative uh, format strategies. So as you can see, working more closely with publishers around first party data is really valuable for brand, um, for insights, but also for audience planning and activation or for things outside the traditional uh, audience planning, such as creative format strategy, for example.
0: Yeah, I think that planning element is a really interesting part of it because I think most people's minds go straight to activation and what can I match like for like, but actually that insight piece is going to be really, really valuable to a lot of brands. Um, James, is there anything you'd like to build on there?
1: Yeah, I think that um, those use cases, I mean, planning, measurement, activation, those are the three that are, you know, really common. We're certainly seeing that a lot. Um, And those are all really valuable when both sides have sufficient first party data Um, to really match that up you know in some cases that is that is true and there's you know either the brand or the publisher both have sufficient first-party data to do those kind of matches and drive those kinds of use cases. But then we often hear from brands, for example, we don't have a first-party data strategy, we don't have a lot of logged in users, we don't own a lot of email addresses. So we're starting to see interesting use cases coming up where, for example, um, brands might have panels that they operate in certain markets and they have come to rely on those panels over the years to drive key insights about their product and to drive key insights about people to drive the propensity of those products. So we're starting to see brands And say well wait a minute let's take that panel let's do a one-to-one match with all of the publishers in that market uh, and then let's see if we can start to build look-alike models based on what we know about those users in the panel so effectively using the panel as a seed audience um, to drive look-alike models throughout publisher cohorts so i think that's a really really interesting use case and it starts to address some of the issues around you know maybe not having sufficient first-party data Um, And then we're starting to see, I think, a lot of collaboration coming together around third-party identity spines. And so I think there's maybe a bit of a debate in the ecosystem sometimes around, you know, clean rooms or third-party identity providers, UID 2.0, or these types of things, you know, which one is going to win out in the end? And I think that we firmly believe that there's going to be a combination of the two. So you can imagine scenarios where a brand doesn't have significant first-party data and even maybe the publisher doesn't have significant logged-in data, but they can both rely on a third-party identity spine to come together to do a match to start sharing insights, to start understanding overlap, to start understanding um, uh, you know, what segments uh, are going to be truly valuable for that brand to target within that publisher's environment. So there's a number of use cases I see uh, now starting to emerge that are overcoming the barriers of, of you know, not necessarily having sufficient first-party data.
0: Yeah, so I think at TPA we are beginning to see that advertisers um, are understanding the benefits of clean rooms and are keen to start using them, but actually when it comes to scaling their activation and their targeting strategies and the insights that's starting to give them, um, it's maybe not scaling to how they'd expect or acting how they assume it's going to. So would your advice there be that it's all about collaboration and the partners that they're working with or what's the best way for them to look at that?
1: I mean, at the root of it is absolutely all about collaboration, and I think that's what clean rooms really enable is <clears throat> almost like a new era of collaboration and allowing brands to collaborate. If it's you know the case of CPGs, for example, collaborating with their retail partners, understanding more about the behavior of their audiences within those retail environments, be they online, offline, um, you know, whatever the case. For retailers to start collaborating closer with publishers um and understanding the behavior of 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 retail e-commerce customers within certain publisher environments um there's just so much to be learned and so much to be gained that traditionally wasn't really possible unless you were you know exposing the underlying data to your partners but with a clean room that's been you know um uh, put together the right way you can choose to share certain attributes Um, that your partner is going to find very, very valuable, but that won't necessarily risk exposing your underlying data set. Uh, And you can do that in a way that's very safe, very compliant um, and maintains, again, I'll use that word, the sovereignty of the underlying data set.
0: So because your exposure risk is minimal, actually we can get richer insights out of it in comparison to maybe what we were able to before.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, when you think about You know, third party cookies um, and even in some cases other types of identifiers, the minute that you connect your first party data or your users to an identifier, you're immediately exposing yourself to some degree of compliance risk, right? And some degree of data leakage. I mean, certainly publishers, you know, are no stranger to the idea of um, of their data sort of leaking out, whether intentionally or unintentionally, uh, and then you know, in some ways being used in, in ways that the publisher did not necessarily approve of, or would not necessarily have approved of had anyone taken the time to ask them. Um, So, you know, I think that there's a a whole era of empowerment ahead for publishers as, you know, cookies and other types of identifiers go away because I think it really starts to put publishers in the driver's seat in terms of data activation, Um, so I think that's a good thing, you know. But mainly we're here to talk about brands today, but I I thought I'd get in uh, a little bit of a plug for publishers in that sense as well. (laughs)
0: I'll allow it just the once. (laughs) Um, So. Flood of love. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So back to that activation element so it's still quite a new piece of technology and people might not know quite what to expect when they turn a particular strategy on and i'm conscious that you know the people on the ground actually activating these campaigns they don't know what to expect versus the person that's maybe signed off on this technology so is there anything that you'd like to say to nip that in the bud and the solutions mm-hmm. um, that you can do with that maybe tim i'll put that to you first
3: yeah yeah i think um, c- coming back to a point i made earlier around kind of level of effort for new technology versus level of output. I think that has been a challenge as relates to activation in some cases, historically. Uh, I see that changing quite quickly, actually. I think there's a, a parallel trend here that we haven't quite discussed yet, which is the kind of data empowerment of everybody, right? Everybody is becoming more data rich by the day, whether you're a brand or whether you're a media owner, there's a huge amount happening in terms of, you know, data warehousing, data acquisition, you know, product evolution, the way that we interface with customers and DTC, that are really driving more data to be on either side, that is just fundamentally addressing part of that problem. Um, I think on the activation side, one of the one of the challenges, or perhaps one of the blind spots, has been that we thought we just had to use this data to reactivate an ad campaign on site. It's super binary and really short sighted, in my opinion. When you think about the fact that. One of the byproducts of leveraging clean technology is we can actually somewhat paradoxically bring more high value data to the table despite the fact that the stakes are raising right so i have crm data perhaps kind of loyalty ids i've got uh, customer identifiers all kinds of attributes as well alongside them that creates a super set of opportunities for activation so unsurprisingly What we now see is that this is playing into non-adtech use cases, right? People are actually looking to run co-branded and co-marketed campaigns, right? The reason you see retailers all jumping into the retail media opportunity right now is because of the depth and richness of their data, but also because they want to evolve what's been happening for the last two decades around trade spend and retail spend multi-billion dollar industry that comes back to promotional activation as opposed to just kind of, you know, on-site advertising. So I think, you know, this really plays into something I said earlier around kind of gen one versus kind of gen two clean rooms and use cases. The first generation of technology really did a good job, I think, of of delivering on publisher matches, right? And and that's great. Uh, I just think there's more to be done here and I think there's more data to unlock that is way more advanced and is going to be way more interesting in the next kind of 12, 24 months.
0: Yeah, thank you. I really love that idea of the Gen 1 and the Gen 2. I think it helps to kind of separate the two slightly differing pieces of technology that existed in Gen 1 versus Gen 2. Um, Andrew, I saw you nodding away to that. Is there anything that you'd like to add?
2: Yeah, uh, thank you, Danny, for giving me the opportunity to step in. I just wanted to um, add my view from an activation perspective. You asked a question about activation earlier. Um, And I think uh, it's up to all of us to be very honest and say, look, unfortunately, there's not a a uh, one-size-fits-all solution from an activation perspective. Um, having worked with different technologies over the past few years across multiple channels and platforms, I can confidently say that there are a number of solutions that provide scale, um, depending on, on four different channels. But unfortunately, there's not one solution that works across, um, you know, scales across all channels from an activation uh, perspective. So. Um, in terms of you know giving advice to um, the agencies and brands today on the call, I would say always think about when choosing you know activation partners. Always think about your key channels where you're looking to um, find your audiences and activate the data that you are. Um, Gathering and um, you want to activate f- from the clean rooms. If you look at identity solutions, they provide really good connectivity into the world uh, gardens, the logged in environments, the likes of Google Ads, Facebook, and other social platforms. But the reality is that they lack scale in programmatic or open web because uh, the percentage of authenticated traffic is is still so low. Um, then you know we got solutions like InfoSum, for example, that have good connectivity with a number of TV platforms and solutions like permittive that focus uh, specifically on future-proof scalability for the open web. Um, So uh, keep that in mind when you're thinking about activation. Unfortunately, I would like to tell you otherwise, but that's not the one solution.
1: I think from an activation point of view it's also important um you know at Optible, we firmly believe that activation can be possible directly from the clean room to the publisher so without the need to put uh another id in the middle if you will and as i said earlier the minute that you take first party data and you connect that to another id then you immediately start to risk um you know data leakage compliance all of those things Um, So, you know, we've been pretty focused on developing solutions to allow activation in a contiguous way from the first party data set directly to, um, let's say, a private marketplace opportunity or uh, some sort of key value that can be pushed into an ad server. Uh, So there's a number of ways to think about activation, um, uh, I believe, directly from the first party data set to the uh, ad delivery mechanisms.
0: Great, yeah, and just one of its many, many use cases that we've discussed. So that kind of leads me on to my next question. Um, So if a brand is just starting out on this journey, they've just started looking into clean rooms, um, what's the first step that they need to take? How do they need to prepare? And if you're able to answer that in terms of brands that already have a lot of data ready versus brands that really don't have a lot of data that they can leverage. Um, James, I'll pass that to you.
1: Sure, I, I think that um, from a starting point, brands really have to you know, think about, well, do I have a first party data strategy? Um, is that something that's possible for my brand? And you know, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. And if it is, then there has to be just like a really intentional approach to, to um, uh, gathering and, and, and organizing first party data. So whether that's making an investment in a CDP or you know, working with some kind of data management structure, I don't think you can really take a whole bunch of raw unstructured data and then make a clean room provider your first call. Um, That's going to be a pretty tough proposition. So you're probably going to have to think about structuring that data and making sure it's organized and orchestrated in a way that allows you to then start collaborating with it. So that's step one. I think I talked a little bit earlier about uh, if you don't have first party data and you're the kind of brand that just never will. Um, for whatever reason, then you can start to explore some of the other use cases that I talk about. You know, are you using panels? Um, What are you using to drive consumer insight? And then how can you start collaborating closer, maybe with companies that do have a lot of data and do have a lot of first party data? Uh, And how can you start developing closer relationships with them and can clean rooms play uh, a role in that? And then I think the second step is like, what are those just initial use cases? Be really clear. Is it ad targeting? Is that something that you're really interested in doing? Is it data enrichment? Are you a CPG who wants to partner with a retailer to enrich your first party data set with with, uh, purchase data or things that the retailer knows? Are you a CPG who wants to partner with, let's say uh, other types of third party data providers and just enrich your first party data set? Because that's a great use case and many brands will never have to go any further than that. Um, They can just use clean rooms to safely connect to other data sources and and make their own first party data set a lot richer but really just thinking about what are those initial use cases so that when you start to engage with a clean room provider uh you have a good sense of what it is that you want to accomplish
0: yeah i think that's really clear and andrea how might someone go about evaluating the quality of their existing first party data
2: um well, um, I think it's something that, <laughs> or, you know, a process that all brands need to, to go through because um, uh, we're all focusing now on acquiring more uh, data, growing our, your data, first-party data acquisition strategy, um, but that shouldn't come at the expense of the quality of data. What, what I've seen over the past few years is that the quality of your first-party data asset, is it um accurate? Is it uh fresh? Do you have a lot of Labs customers in there? Did they give their you know genuine contact details when engaging with the brand? Um, so you know, for example, we see some brands uh pushing lots of sampling strategies, uh, for example, and in some cases they don't get the accuracy of the data that that they get. So yeah, data quality is definitely a big uh, player. Uh, when it comes to um, the value that it can extract uh, from your data. Also, something that I, um, if I may add, that I've uh, some advice for brands and agencies looking to um, use their first-party data more is from the beginning, engage your legal teams early on um, in order to understand what, um, from your first-party data asset, what percentage is consented and how much volume you've got uh, with your first party data when you are um, thinking about activating that data for marketing purposes. In some cases, we see brands with millions, let's say 10 million um, in their customer database, but actually maybe already three or four million um, is consented for for marketing. So this is something that you need to understand early on and it's important that you collaborate with your legal teams, with your information security teams as these, these processes can take a really long time.
3: Just to add to that, Danny, just before we move on to the next thing, one area that um, I see us, I see brands sometimes missing is actually just doing a little kind of house cleaning and checking of what types of relationships they already have in place. Um, Often you can be a big brand with big sponsorship opportunities, they might sit outside your direct remit, but you know, they come with all kinds of different clauses and. You know, I've been speaking to FMCG brands, you know, alcohol brands who've got five-year deals with sports rights holders, for example, and they're not really maximizing the output of the data in those existing relationships yet. So do you think when you think about the path to, you know, how do you get there? Sometimes it begins by just doing an audit, right? And not about data quality, more around kind of what do we have in place today? Where do we have agreements? Which partners have we got opportunity with that are really endemic? to us as a business as opposed to going try and find something that's really non-endemic which doesn't make any sense right so I think start start at home
0: solid advice um so just moving on from this slightly now how do you see the advertisers use cases for data clean rooms evolving and changing as time goes on so really what's next for data clean rooms James did you want to take this
1: um sure i mean you know i think when we talked a lot about the use cases uh and and stuff and things that people can get started on today i think the the future is also just kind of you know um limited only by or or unlimited only by creativity right i mean once brands start collaborating and start really understanding the value of safe secure collaboration i think there's just like so many things that they can start to accomplish so you know we can talk a lot about the future and, and future use cases. Certainly, I believe that that uh, clean rooms will have a, just a massive, massive role to play in ad targeting and hyper-targeting uh, and driving private marketplace activity within the programmatic ecosystem. Uh, and that's something that we'll remain very focused on. Um, you know, if you think about it, there's, you know, cookies are still around in, you know, Google Chrome and they're still being used. So, and there's certainly, many people who think they might be around longer than, you know, the current deadlines that have been, uh, that have been imposed. Um, so I think that, you know, we'll be still talking a lot about clean rooms and programmatic and, and hyper ad targeting, you know, two and even three years from now.
0: Yeah. We're just getting started. And uh, Tim, I think this ties nicely into your gen one versus gen two of clean rooms. So what's next for gen two?
3: Yeah, I think it's really all about, um I'll talk about something quite specific now without trying to get too much into the weeds, but you know, some of the asks that were being made of participants in, in Gen 1 were really, I think, too much for um, today's kind of very privacy-centric uh, world. You know, copy all my data out, map it all to someone else's schema, and then decide what to do with it. I think we're entering an era, actually, where we can be way more dynamic than that. I think you're starting to see Um, connectivity really go towards the data warehouse and the data genuinely stay at rest where, where it was supposed to be and I think that starts to unlock more use case opportunity actually because people are going to be more comfortable about bringing their data to one side of a collaboration or partnership if there's less effort less risk less technical overhead and that's definitely where we're kind of getting to now and then I think top of that what you do is you have to think about really clean room or data collaboration use cases as like ingredients basically you're making a recipe what am i adding to what else and what's going to be the actual product of that there's no point in joining two things that don't match Um, we need to find data sets that have synergy and partners that have synergy so it could be that you're looking at uh, ad logs from a ctv company Uh, And we're then looking at conversion data from uh, a D2C brand who wants to understand what the impact of that campaign was on ultimate conversion. Great set of ingredients. Right. And there's just hundreds of combinations that we could do of those. I think to James's point, it's really limited by um, matchability and then creativity of the two things.
0: Great. Thank you. And uh, Andrew, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Um, Just shortly, building on from uh, Tim's point earlier around Gen 1 versus Gen 2, I think uh, with the focus on privacy that is only going to continue to grow, we believe Um, it is important for brands to um, dig a bit deeper under the hood when they evaluate the clean rooms and uh, the technologies that they use to match data. Uh, We believe that the future of data matching uh, lies Um, with no transfer of data between parties, no data mingling, no transfer of data to keep data safe and secure. Um, And this is definitely an attribute of Gen 2 uh, clean rooms, if you want, such as the ones that you've got here represented today. And also the other point is um, around activation. I I know I keep coming back to this, but um, does your clean room partner or um, technology enable you to also activate uh, your data in those uh, channels where you're looking to target your customers. And if you're looking to do so in the open web, is it, uh, you know, is it future proof? Uh, is it reliant on third-party cookies? Is it scalable? How scalable it is? And um, I will be controversial and go one step further and say that the privacy uh, regulations are only going to continue to get stricter and stricter. So um, my view personally is that um, we might see a future in five to ten years where no identifiers at all are, um, uh, uh, you permitted to be used uh, in the uh, ad tech ecosystem, in the programmatic ecosystem. Um, So it's something that brands might want to think about now.
0: Lovely, thank you. And uh, just building on a point that we mentioned earlier, um, and I think Tim would be good if you could address this one. So will brands have to use multiple clean rooms to target walled gardens versus TV versus the open web respectively, or will you be able to target one target all environments in one
3: yeah this fragmentation right is the the big kind of uh the risk here and i think look fragmentation is already here uh, in clean rooms uh, if we wind the clock back i think um mike moreau my coo uh, got access to google's clean room back in 2016 when it was called full circle um project full circle you know these things have been around for a while now we're seeing a fragmentation of the big data owners and audience owners as they begin to build their offerings, right? What essentially is happening is this kind of arms race to construct a new privacy enabled data distribution uh, model, whether that's a wall garden impression level, whether that's a retailer doing transaction level, and that runs the risk of causing real frag- fragmentation on the operational side for brands and agencies and their partners. Um, we actually saw this coming Pretty early, I think, and we believe that there is a critical need for software, for a software layer, to actually sit across different types of clean rooms in terms of the interface and operational side. But you're never going to be able to dedupe across them, right? There's no one saying that I can suddenly magically dedupe across Amazon and a publisher's clean room like Disney, who work with Habu or or anything like that. They're sovereign. But what we can do is at least provide tools to. Uh, standardise the way that we might interface with them or run queries on them and simplify that a little bit that's something that we find to be a a, a constant area of uh, uh, our kind of r&d
0: yeah and that's really valuable to understand how they can sort of collaborate and work together with the access that you are able to get and just one final point before we move on to the q a so in your experience and um, where does the responsibility for actually setting up and testing clean room tech lie? So, is it maybe with the marketing team, with the central IT or data team, brand teams? Where are you seeing it happen? Um, Andrea, would you like to address that first?
2: Um, yeah. Um, well, yeah. In my experience, I've seen that it really requires a joint effort between teams to come together and collaborate in order to enable. a successful onboarding of clean room and similar technologies. Um, Marketing um, hold the bottom line at the end of the day, and they are responsible for defining the use cases and uh, the value internally and articulating that um, internally to the other functions. Uh, And also collaborating with the different teams, IT, and data, but also legal information security. Those are all teams that need to work together in order to first um, assess uh, a clean room technology um, and make sure that the right one is chosen by the brand dependent on their data security and data privacy uh, guidelines. And then uh, secondly, um, I think it's really important that the brand and the marketing teams Uh, Align with their data teams and IT teams early on to make sure um, that the data is formatted in the right way and uh, can be accessible uh, in order to be uh, processed uh, by the clean room technology. And also, as I said earlier, that the legal teams are uh, involved so that they are comfortable with what data can be used for marketing purposes and whatnot. So really, in my in my view, it's a joint effort and uh, you need an internal champion on the marketing team to be liaising internally with all the different stakeholders and making sure that the right teams are involved at the right stage of the journey.
0: Yeah, we'll- we always recommend that in terms of technology. If you assign an owner, it's much easier to see that consistently through the business when there's so many moving parts that need to be involved. Um, James, would you agree with that, with Andrew's points?
1: Yeah, I think it really starts with marketing. Let's be honest, the, the vision, the use cases, those all have to come out of the marketing organization. Um, we find that IT compliance gets involved pretty early on where, you know, infosec processes, for example, can take a very, very long time. Uh, three to six months in some cases with large organizations and so we're involved in several of these where um, there's just, you know, endless lists of questions around, you know, how do we manage our data centers? And, um, you know, what does it mean that somebody's logged into the platform and like all of these types of things. So that's usually driven by IT, as Andrew mentioned, uh, legal from a consent point of view needs to be involved, um, but they're really step functions. It starts with marketing. That's where the vision starts. That's where the use cases start. Sometimes that's driven by the agency, depending on the brand and depending on the relationship. And then what we're often seeing, of course, is that the agencies are staffing the platforms. and so Cases on behalf of the brands, so the brands are signing the contracts. The brands are uh, engaging in the um, in the uh, in the business dealings with the clean room providers, um, but it's often the agencies that are stepping up and staffing that on behalf of the brand to make sure that they're executing properly and to make sure that it fits into their overall uh, marketing mix and their overall strategy.
0: Lovely, thank you. Um, so I think we'll move on to Q and A now. So. Guys, if you've got any questions, please, please submit them into the Q&A box and we'll make sure they're, they're answered. Um, someone's asked that we touch more on the measurement side of things. So, um, Tim, would you like to speak to measurement for us?
3: Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, and if, if I didn't do a, a clear enough job of it, then I apologise. We talked about it maybe a bit. We, we flew over it a bit much. Um, measurement, you know, you think about what's happening in the ecosystem, I think like, Disney's a good example of this. You know, they've historically had a whole measurement ecosystem made up of client-side tracking and all the partnerships fulfilled through, you know, pixels and kind of direct access. James talked about it a bit earlier. It was very all or nothing, I think, in the approach that um, they had. The other alternative was to ship a log file, again, all or nothing, to provide someone with that that information. It's all moving into clean rooms right now. Um, What you're seeing, I think, happen is the ability for a publisher, a broadcaster, or a platform to provision just the data that relates to that customer and to lock down that data set in a specific way that gives that customer the answers they need around exposure, uh, around frequency, around the things that they want to see is incredibly appealing. I see the independent kind of uh, players, the Disneys of this world, pushing the hardest on this, actually, because I think they have the most to gain. Um, you know, great strategy, right? They've built a very, very strong set of declared users so they can do this. Not everybody will be in the same position. But uh, by unlocking that data set in such a way and bring it to the hold codes, bring it to the agencies and brands, what they're really doing is they're they're probably gonna force more transparency in measurement across the industry, I think. The other person I see doing a really lot of work in this area, it's actually Amazon. Amazon have been really throwing uh, bodies and resource and data into their clean room because, again, they've got a ton to win here, you know, with CPGs in terms of allowing them to measure right down to the conversion level because they have that entire food chain. So some of these trends coming from the big guys, whether it's a broadcaster or a a walled garden, I think they're going to drive a lot of the next waves of of, uh, fast followers in measurement more broadly.
0: Yep, so a lot of use cases around that panel data and the the reach and frequency, things that we maybe weren't able to think about in conjunction with our data before.
3: Yeah, not even just panels, right? Like the actual raw data, right? Just just not exposed and
1: and delivered the right way.
0: Got it. Um, James, Andrew, did you guys want to expand on measurement at all?
1: Sure. I mean, you can imagine a scenario, for example, um, attribution becomes a really, really interesting use case. So you can imagine a publisher coming to the table um, with a brand and saying, "Look, here's uh, a list of your first party IDs that have been exposed to an ad on my site in the last you know thirty days, sixty days, whatever the time frame may be. So now that brand has that exposure data, they can then either you know look at their own first party data in terms of purchase information if they happen to be a DTC brand, for example, um, or they can go to a retailer and say, "Look, I've got a list of my audience members who've been exposed to an ad in the last thirty days. What has their purchase intent been?" Um, And what's that look like? Have they actually purchased my product? So, you know, getting into like attribution and really understanding, like, is my advertising working? Is it reaching the people that I want it to reach? And is it driving the kind of behavior and actions um, that I want it to drive? I think clean rooms are going to open up uh, a whole new world of opportunity there. I think You know, more broadly on measurement, if you look at television and, and, you know, um, specifically in the U.S. market, um, but also a little bit in Europe as well, you know, there's a real shift away from sort of panel-based measurement um, to looking at one-to-one measurement. In my own view, I'd say that TV measurement is wide open at the moment. Um, There's a ton of innovation happening. There's a ton of new players in the space. A lot of the traditional panel-based companies uh, are innovating like crazy because they recognize there's all these new opportunities to just do it in a very, very different way. Um, so I'll get back to that, you know, creativity, innovation, that whole part of it. Um, I think it's going to take some really clever people and some really clever marketers and some really clever media owners, uh, to get together and start collaborating in clean rooms and really understand the art of the possible and what they're going to be able to accomplish together.
2: Yeah. The only thing that I would, um, add to that is that, um, it is still possible right to do measurement with uh, within environments or using data from environments that are logged in or authenticated. Uh, James mentioned TV, you know, uh, social other channels uh, in the space of um, open web. Um, programmatic, working with publishers directly where the authentication rates are much smaller. I think this is where um, there's a big challenge. And uh, unfortunately, we don't see a solution at the moment uh, emerging that can um, replace third-party cookies and third-party identifiers. And we are actually seeing the brands that we work with work more closely with publishers to use publisher insights and studies, also uh, relying on brand lift studies uh, more but when it comes to uh, the more uh, low funnel sort of conversion metrics um, I think the challenge there's a real challenge without uh, third-party cookies and identifiers so that's an area that is really yet to be developed.
3: I think James you made a good point there about innovation in panels and I think you were coming from a slightly different angle to, to something I almost stumbled upon recently which is you know panels used to be kind of Predetermined and pre built by somebody else. You know, they'd say these are the constituents and here access my panel. I think there's an opportunity today and tomorrow for people to really construct their own perfect panel right across the kind of measurement funnel. So, whether that's, you know, tapping into exposure data at the top from either DSP log files or direct from a publisher, but then going out and sourcing really unique signal in the mid funnel, I think was where James was getting into a bit there, which I think is a really, really um, interesting area. We've seen automotive companies doing this already. You know, they have a massive disparity between you know exposed versus the actual conversion event because of the length of the purchase cycle. So being able as an auto OEM to take my Trade Desk red feed at the top of the, the kind of uh, funnel and then go out and work with a classified business who has signal around who's actually gone on from exposure to actual query in that auto set is really valuable. And then it's like, what are the new conversion signals? What are they going to be? The bottom funnel signals is where I think it's interesting. Because car manufacturers don't have, you know, a huge scale in that either. Car configurators and people taking test drives, never going to be the biggest. But what else is out there? And I think location will be an area that starts to see some more innovation here at the bottom of the funnel. Things like Foursquare shifting in towards more of a kind of hex view, less kind of one-to-one and precise geolocation, but more around specific hex tiles looks to be pretty bob on for something that's going to be a big area of conversion signal at the bottom.
0: Great, thank you. I think we've got time for just one additional question. I think James, this one um, would be a good one for you. Um, Match rates being an issue to scale activation, what's your punt for the future? Is it collecting email, mobile, ad ID, IP?
1: Uh, Well, I think Andra, um, you know, highlighted this, a lot of these identifiers, and I would say specifically mobile ad ID, IP, those things are already starting to go away or become non-addressable from a match point of view. Um, My own personal view is that email address will always remain persistent in the same way that home addresses, right? Um, You know, you tell your bank your home address, you tell your credit card company your home address, you share these things all the time. I think that consumers are going to get Uh, more and more comfortable with the idea of using their email address as a way to identify them in a transaction. And so you're starting to see, for example, even uh, publishers experiment with the notion of like, well, I don't need to capture and store the email address, but if you want to enter my site and you want to view my content, you have to enter your email address uh, into, you know, sort of the consent management screen. I think that's a really, really um, great way to go. And I think that that will turn into a really valuable method of, you know, identifying a user for targeting purposes. Um, and, and it's kind of the value trade-off, isn't it? I want to read this content, but I have to you know, tell them who I am uh, in order to do that. I, I think that consumers are going to get very, very comfortable with that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So we are just about out of time now. That brings us to three. So hopefully everyone's feeling a little bit more knowledgeable about data clean rooms now and the use cases surrounding those. Um, So big, big thank you to you, Tim, James, Andra, for joining our panel today. And thanks for everyone for tuning in to watch the panel. So thanks, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. Thank you for listening to this TPA Digital Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. And please make sure to follow us on your favourite podcast provider so that you can stay up to date on the latest topics on data-driven digital advertising. Stay safe and see you next time.